my name's Justin McClure, and I'm here today with... Will Sloan. And you're listening to the Important Cinema Club. Shocktober! <laughs> I need to find some more sound effects, because we do the same five every time. I don't know if there are any more sound effects. <laughs> I want to suck your blood. Oh, what a great transition, because today we're talking about Bella Lugosi, Dracula himself. Mm-hmm. Will... You're a big Bella fan. I love him. Where did it start? I actually can't remember where it started. But, you know, I mean, I remember watching Dracula on TV as a kid with my parents. I got into Ed Wood as a child. And I think it really was more through Ed Wood that I got to Bella Lugosi. And then from there, watched a lot of his Poverty Row movies, watched a lot of his Universal movies. And more than anything, it was the strange, otherworldly presence that he had and the tragic story of his life that compelled me. Did he make an impact on you at all as Dracula? Dracula was one of his less beloved movies for me. Mm -hmm. You know, I loved, as I've said before, I loved the universal horror movies growing up, but Dracula was a little too boring for me, frankly. I liked it more in Abbott and Costello meets Frankenstein. The thing about Dracula is that, and this is pretty um, universally accepted, is it's not that good a movie. Mm -hmm. It's an iconic film. And it has a lot of moments that have imprinted themselves in, like, yeah. the public consciousness. But it's Todd Browning isn't that visually inventive. It's kind of plodding a little bit. And you have all those people saying, mm, well, the Spanish version that shot on the same set is a better film. And frankly, it is. Yes. But it's Bela Lugosi's performance that has kind of defined Dracula as a person for all time. Yes. And... For me, Bella has always been Dracula and the guy in the Ed Wood films. Mm -hmm. And while you look at his filmography, he has like 140-something credits. None of them have ever reached those heights of those two extremes, really. Him at the top of his game and him at the bottom of his game. But, you know, I think I could... If given the opportunity, program a really good 10 or 12 film retrospective. I mean, The Black Cat. Yeah, The Black Cat, The Raven, White Zombie, Son of Frankenstein, or even uh, some of the more off-the-beaten-path movies. Like, I saw this movie he made shortly after Dracula called Broad-Minded, a comedy starring Joey Brown, a forgotten comedian. Yeah. And uh, Bela Lugosi plays, like, like the straight man in mm. a lot of the scenes. Kind of like what Edgar Kennedy was to the Marx Brothers. And he's, like, very funny in it. Yeah. Like, I, I could think I could do, like, a 10 or 12 film retrospective that shows the full range of his talent. But I think that the reason people remember him the way that they do is that his highs were so high and his lows were so low. Yeah. And then you have something like Ed Wood that just paints a picture of Bella that wins an Academy Award and be comes him in and, a way. Well, it's such a it's such a vivid picture because when you watch Ed Wood, Martin Landau does such great justice to the regal quality that Lugosi had. He does great justice to the otherworldly quality he had because the Bella Lugosi character in that movie is the only character in the movie with really heavy makeup. Mm-hmm. So he already looks different. It conveys that Lugosi, even in the impoverished circumstances that he was in, surrounded by all these weirdos, carried himself with this elegance. But yeah, it also shows kind of how sad and pathetic he was towards the end of his life. So let's start at the beginning of his life. As fans like to call him, Bella Ferenc Desso Blasco. I said that completely wrong, but you know, inner circles. That's how we uh, talk about Bella Lugosi. Yeah, our friend Bella. He was born in Hungary, uh, in a part of Hungary that's now Romania, not far from Transylvania, like mm. like 50 miles from Transylvania. I think very close to the uh, castle where Vlad the Impaler was yes. known to have lived. And, and if... If you want to know, was that a fact that was brought out 
when he publicized his movies? The answer is yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, we should mention here that Bella was a very good uh, hype man for himself, <laughs> disseminating all types of stories about about his life, which makes it a little bit difficult to kind of separate what's real and what's not real. Well, what we know is that when he was, I don't know, 10 or 11, he dropped out of school and became an actor. Did a lot of parts in regional theater in Hungary. A lot of Shakespearean roles. He played Romeo. He then went to the National Theater of Hungary in Budapest, where, you know, he would often claim that he played all the great parts. He played Cyrano. He played Romeo. Famously, he played Jesus in a passion play. (laughs) There's a good picture of that that you can find (laughs) online. I mean, in truth, at the National Theater, he mostly played supporting roles. Mm. But he did get to meet and work with and learn from many of the great actors in Hungary at the time. So after that, uh, he kind of got involved in a bunch of unionist and communist shenanigans. Which ended uh, with him being kind of, which ended with him having to run away from Hungary because he was on the wrong side of the government at the time. Yes, the Hungarian Revolution of 1919. He went to Vienna and then he settled in Berlin where he acted in films, most notably a film by F.W. Murnau based on uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Is it one of his lost films or? I actually don't know. I only just learned about it this week. This was a film Murnau made just a year before Nosferatu. Lugosi as we'll talk probably a little bit about later, was also a famous womanizer. He had five wives in his life. And I just want to point out that when he did run from Hungary, he did run away with his first wife, who was a rich socialite. And he would say that anyone who would listen until the day he died was the love of his life. But she ran away because he was a poor actor, which is something that you see over and over again in Bella's very sad existence. By the way, while we're talking about Bella's sex life, uh, <laughs> he had an affair with Clara Bow, yes. the, the famous it girl of the silent screen, and he had a nude portrait of her commissioned, which he apparently carried with him for the rest of his life in every house that he lived in. Like, he was married to a woman, Lillian Lugosi, for yeah. 20 years. Mm-hmm. Still had that nude portrait of Clara Bow <laughs> up in his house. You know, he just wanted to flaunt it, right? Just yeah. to say that he's been there and he has... Uh, painted evidence. Yeah, he may be wrestling with a rubber octopus now in a swamp for Ed Wood, but, you know, 40 years ago, he and Clara Bow were doing it. So, Bella finally ended up in Hollywood, where he said that for many, many years he didn't speak English, and he would have to do his lines phonetically, including even when he was cast on stage for the Dracula play. The director actually had to communicate with Bella in French. Is that so? I always wondered if that was a bit of an urban rumor. Yeah, it's a little bit. Uh, he said that he didn't speak English for a long time, but people, as he got into his career, especially in the Dracula run, said they could have conversational uh, English conversations with Bella. Well, Roger Ebert, in his great movies review of Dracula, mentions that even if it's not true, the way that Bella speaks as Dracula conveys the sense of somebody who has had centuries to study English, but not a lot of opportunities to actually speak it. And, you know, Bella's very stilted, as everyone is, in the first Dracula movie. And then for the rest of his career, he became more natural, but he always spoke with peculiar pauses and a strange syntax that would be peculiar. And Dracula kind of cemented the way Bella would be treated for the rest of his career, because when Universal was making the motion picture, they didn't want to cast Bella, even though that on stage... He had been a huge hit, like sold out shows. They wanted to go in a different direction. And Bella actually like begged them to do the role. Yeah, it's incredible. And one of the only reasons he got it. So Bella played Dracula from in 1927 on Broadway. He toured it around the country, 28, 29. One of the only reasons he got the role in Hollywood was because he was actually 
touring the show on the West Coast in 1930 when the film was being prepared. Universal wanted to cast Paul Mooney. They wanted to cast Ian Keith. They wanted to cast Lon Chaney Sr. Mm. Like, they had a whole bunch of people. And supposedly, most of them turned them down. Mm. And Lon Chaney Sr. died, of course. Yeah. And when Lugosi was cast, he was paid $500 a week, which amounted to $3,500 total. David Manners, who plays Jonathan Harker in the film, got paid more than Bela Lugosi did. Almost everybody did. Yeah. And this would continue for the rest of Bela Lugosi's career. That forces me to consider that it's just a kind of xenophobic treatment of Bela, right? Because he speaks with a thick accent. The studio heads are probably like that. We don't need to pay him as much. Like, he's not important. He's not an American. Certainly. Well, there are a lot of factors, I think, that contributed to Lugosi's downfall. There's the accent, which... I mean, in addition to xenophobia, frankly, made it harder to cast him in movies. But it's just like, he's so good at this one thing, just know how to use it. But also, Lugosi was not a good businessman. He aggressively overspent. He liked to live large to the point where in 1932, the year after Dracula, he filed for bankruptcy. He also had a massive ego. So, you know, the, the most famous story is that he supposedly turned down the role of the Frankenstein monster. Because after Dracula was a huge hit, Universal went, all right, we know, let's take the guy who played Dracula and supposedly they wanted him to play uh, Dr. Frankenstein originally. Hmm. And then complications ensued, probably the accent. And they said, oh, but how about you play the monster instead? Well, Carl Lemley Jr., who was the executive who was the big advocate for horror movies at Universal, wanted a new Lon Chaney, Mm -hmm. another man of a thousand faces. So he thought, let's get him to be the monster. Of course, Lugosi who was, you know, big star in Hungary and, and a very, very sexy man, a very romantic lead, uh, belly ached about having to play this monster. I think the idea that he turned it down is probably overstated because L- Bella would do anything. I mean, in two years after Dracula, he's in Island of Lost Souls with a bunch of heavy makeup on. But that could be a reaction to him seeing that uh, Frankenstein was a huge hit. And he's like, all right, I got to get into this game. Yeah, but but I mean, I think what probably happened was, you know, he, he bellyache said Murders in the Rue Morgue was another project that was floating around. Lugosi probably wanted to do that more. And James Whale probably didn't want to work with Lugosi. No, because like with Lugosi, you get a very specific mm-hmm. kind of acting and nothing else. So they probably said, OK, Bella, you go off and do Murders in the Rue Morgue. James Whale will cast his guy, Boris Carlyle off as Frankenstein the monster I mean Lugosi would have been good as Frankenstein the doctor but Colin Clive is better yes I think that Colin Clive brings a kind of fear and excitement there's an intensity and there's a realness to him that Lugosi would not have had and it's not difficult to imagine what Lugosi would have done with that role because he kind of played that kind of character over and over again for the rest of his doctors in hundreds of movies (laughs) exactly So, and this supposedly led to a feud between Bela Lugosi and Boris Karloff, which was a little bit overstated, uh, especially in Ed Wood, the Tim Burton film. Well, they were said to have been very cordial to each other when they worked, and accounts of people who knew them say they never badmouthed each other. Karloff would often refer to him as poor Bela. (laughs) Yes. In in kind of a condescending way. Because what ended up happening was after Frankenstein kind of spun off into its own franchise, 
uh, Bella Lugosi came back to play other roles, <laughs> including the Frankenstein monster. Yeah, and Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. Oh, I, but the other reason, there's one more factor for Lugosi's career decline, and you can just see it in the movies he made in the two years after Dracula. He didn't know how to manage his career. Mm-hmm. He he came from the stage in Hungary where, and this is an insight I got, by the way, from Arthur Lenning's biography, The Immortal Count, which is very good, and I recommend to any Lugosi file. On the stage... You know, there was a repertory company and you could play lead roles, you could play supporting roles, and it didn't affect your standing. And so in the two years after Dracula, he pops up as, you know, a red herring in a movie or he pops up in a bit part in another movie and then he's a star in another movie. And then he does a movie at Universal, then he does a movie in a Poverty Row studio like White Zombie. And somebody like Boris Karloff and the people around him knew, you know... You have to stay on top. Yeah. Be be the Lon Chaney of the 30s. Which is funny because Bella, when he made Dracula, like, told everybody, I never want to play this kind of role again. I never want to put a Dracula cape on again. I don't want this to be me. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, famous last words. Yeah. <laughs> me and Will did watch uh, The Devil Bat, which many people consider, other than White Zombie... Uh, one of the most fun Bela Lugosi Poverty Row films. Well, maybe we should explain what Poverty Row is. Which is weird because I actually, while watching the film, I went, did we do an episode about Poverty Row? And we've we never been, did. We've been talking about yeah. it. And we should at some point. The problem is there aren't enough really good Poverty <laughs> yeah, Row movies. they're bad. <laughs> well, like we've already done an Edgar G. Elmer episode. He was the best director to come out of Poverty Row. Yeah. And then after that, Frankly, there aren't a lot of the good ones. So Poverty Row is often connected to one specific company, uh, the producer's releasing company, Mm -hmm. which was a company that would make quickies that were usually about an hour long, uh, was very faded stars to just dump in the cinema, make a little bit of cash, and then be forgotten. And they would be given to cinemas on a rental basis. and, And you would say... We'll, we'll give you this movie for two weeks and you pay a flat fee. And if they give the movie to enough theaters on the same flat fee, they've already made a profit before they've even started the movie. Mm-hmm. So there wasn't a lot of incentive to make them good. Yes, exactly. It's just about cranking something out. And the other most popular Poverty Row studio or the most iconic one was Monogram, mm-hmm. where Lugosi made eight or nine movies. And Monogram was most famous for the Bowery Boys. And I'm sure that people could email us and be like, oh, well, you know, there were some great Poverty Row productions, like Orson Welles did a Macbeth for Monogram, mm-hmm. or they did it for Republic. Republic. Like Orson Welles did Macbeth for Republic, which was also another Poverty Row studio. And yeah, it's true. Like some people flourish under that system and others like um, William Bowbridge, which we'll talk about a little bit later, just cranked him out. I think Poverty Row is at that time was basically the equivalent to what VOD movies are today. Mm-hmm. And somebody like Bela Lugosi would be, be the equivalent of somebody like Nicolas Cage. Mm-hmm. Who, like after he falls off the A-list, he cranks out movies in VOD or sl- slash Poverty Row. So I had never seen The Devil Bat, probably because it got lost in that big mess of Lugosi films like The Ape Man <laughs> and like Bela Lugosi meets a Brooklyn gorilla. And when I started watching it, I didn't read a summary, no, nothing. I went... Huh, what was about a killer bat? Oh man, I hope they just don't use stock footage. <gasps> that is a big rubber bat! <laughs> and that's pretty much all my criticism of the film. <laughs> uh, Bella Lugosi plays kindly Dr. Paul Carruthers. I guess one reason why I kind of like this movie is it has a bit of an autobiographical element for Lugosi. He created a perfume that ended up making a lot of money for a perfume company. 
Mm -hmm. and he never got a dime off it. And as the movie starts, the company gives him a check for $5,000 for all his efforts. And he's angry because, ah, I made the millions, but I get only this $5,000 check. So he decides to get revenge on the people who have wronged him by creating a new aftershave lotion that he gives to the people who have wronged him. Says, put a little on the tender part of your neck. (laughs) And that lotion attracts his giant killer rubber bat to kill him. awesome it's on a string all it does is like bump up against people yeah every time it appeared i had great fun especially when it then cut to stock footage of a real bat (laughs) it's like you're not fooling anybody uh this film is as simple as you can get it stars some comedians i don't know and never saw again hugh o'brien plays the reporter who's on the case you may remember hugh o'brien from reefer madness oh classic and uh it just kind of um, builds to not quite much of anything and ends. It's very repetitive. Yes. And kind of the only thing it has going for it, really, is the fact that Bella's in a lot of it. Yes. There are a lot of movies where Bella, frankly, isn't in a lot of it. Mm-hmm. He's a red herring, or he's kind of a structuring absence. It sounds like what you really liked about it was the fact that you got to just see Bella do his thing. And I think Bella's really good in this movie. Every time he gives aftershave to somebody, he says to them, Goodbye. (laughs) Like he is giving them a death sentence. So yes, I like seeing Bella do his thing. I like the fact that the guy who did the voice of Elmer Fudd is in this movie (laughs) as the newspaper editor. But he does not sound like Elmer Fudd. He sounds a bit like Elmer. If you know it's him, you you can sense it. And I can understand why this film does have a very nostalgia fan base because it's the kind of shit that would have played on Sunday endlessly uh, on like TV channels that just get packages of movies to show. And, and you know, that's the thing. When, when I was growing up, the internet wasn't what it is now. And it's not like we were had access to every single movie ever made. So the devil bat, if you liked Bella, it was very accessible. There mm-hmm. were a million public domain DVDs of it. It was right there. You could watch it. The black cat wasn't on DVD yet. It's, is it, I think it did get a proper DVD release, but no Blu-ray. What's going on? It's insane. I have one more bit of trivia about The Devil Bat. Six or seven years after it came out, PRC did a sequel to it, which Bella's not in. And there's no characters from the movie. But it's called uh, Devil Bat's Daughter. And it's all about how Dr. Paul Carruthers' daughter comes in and clears his name and reveals that actually he didn't kill all those people. He wasn't behind the Devil Bat murders, which is insane because it contradicts (laughs) everything we see in the first movie. And I think something else that's attractive about the Devil Bat is that it's so no frills, there's like not even a mystery to the film. It's like Bella Lugosi is killing these people. So we have to watch these like reporters be like, hmm, I wonder who could do it. And we're like, it's Bella Lugosi. (laughs) Yeah. Which is good because if the movie had played it like a mystery, well, it's Bella Lugosi. Like we know who it is. There are 10 people in this town. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) One of them makes a chemical and does such things with biology. Yeah. Could it be him who has his (laughs) devil bat attacking people? It's also kind of fun just to see Bella like romping around the lab wearing goofy goggles. And apparently all the lab equipment is the same lab equipment from Frankenstein. Do you think that Bella, I mean, I'm sure he didn't care, but it made me think that the next one was called The Devil Bat's Daughter. There was also the sequel to Dracula, which Dracula's daughter, which Bella did not appear in. Yeah. And I wonder what his career would have been if he had continued to play Dracula in the Universal Pictures, other than just reappearing in uh, Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein. You know, it's insane that Universal didn't think that he was important to the success of Dracula. They did Dracula's daughter without him. They did Son of Dracula with Lon Chaney Jr. Because by that time, Lugosi was really washed up and they thought, well, we got our new guy, Lon Chaney Jr., 
Then when they did House of Frankenstein and House of Dracula, they cast John Carradine as Dracula. John John Carradine. Who, like, made the rest of his career off of that role, pretty much. As, like, the guy that appears in Federal and Ray pictures. Never playing Dracula for some reason. And then, like... Lugosi had to fight to be an Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. And he got paid shit, like always. He got paid $8,000 for it, and Abbott and Costello got paid like $100,000. It's just sad. And then Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, which should have been his big comeback. He didn't do another movie for four years after it. And wasn't Abbott and Costello a huge hit, too? Yeah, it was. And, like, you'd think that people would want to exploit Lugosi as his Dracula character, which could lead to other stuff, and they never did. Instead, he would have to do them in shitty movies or appear on talk shows dressed as Dracula. Yeah. Ah, it's so sad. But the saddest thing of all is Bella Lugosi meets a Brooklyn gorilla. This movie came from a period when, after 1948, which was when Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein came out, the only work Bella could get was in summer stock and in touring stage plays. And so he toured the country doing arsenic and old lace and a lot of plays you haven't heard of. Mm -hmm. And his travels eventually led him to England, where he did a disastrous tour of Dracula. And when he was in England, he made this ridiculous movie called Mother Riley Meets the Vampire. I don't have never heard of it. It's with this British drag comedian called (laughs) Old Mother Riley. And then when he came back... He finally got this role, which was even more demeaning. Who stars in this movie? It's Sammy Petrillo and Duke Mitchell, two Jerry Lewis and Dean Martin impersonators who go under their own name in the film. Yeah. The thing I noticed about Sammy Petrillo watching it this time is that he's closer to Jim Carrey than he (laughs) is to Jerry Lewis. Sammy Petrillo is like 17 in this movie. That's insane. Yeah. And the film I only know famously for being terrible, to the point that even Joe Dante in his commentary on Trailers from Hell is like, ugh, this movie. I love this movie. I've seen this movie ten times. How? How could you watch the movie that many times? Like, this movie, it's almost like it was tailor-made for me. Yeah. It has everything Uh, everything I I want. I love the gorilla suit in the film. <laughs> it's just, you know, shaggy enough, and he looks a little bit mean. Uh, the problem is, he only shows up in the last 12 minutes of the film. So, like, here are just some of the reasons why I like it. You've got a guy in a gorilla suit, mm-hmm. okay? You've got Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis impersonators. Bad okay? impersonators. Like, like, it's such a testament to how popular Martin and Lewis were at the time that this movie could exist. You've got Bella Lugosi. you got Bella Lugosi's name in the title. you got some, like, jungle South Seas adventure. <laughs> That's why it's crazy that Bella couldn't get work, considering that these producers knew they could sell the movie by putting his fucking name in the title. He doesn't play Bella Lugosi in the film. Yeah. He plays someone else, but they knew if kids saw Bella Lugosi and Gorilla, they'd be like, oh, I gotta see this movie. And, you know, the Universal Marketing Department apparently knew it because, you know, they would market the movies as Karloff and Lugosi, what a pairing, or, you know, something like that. Yeah. But the executives didn't. Yeah, they're like, oh, they... That doesn't make any money. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd be remiss if we didn't mention who directed this film oh, or yeah. William One Shot Bodine, who was famous for doing one shot and then moving on. Because that's all he had the money for. But he did start right when the motion picture industry was forming itself. And he worked with people like John Ford. He directed um, Sparrows, which was a famous Mary Pickford, like gothic romance. Mm-hmm. And what ended up happening was circumstances 
kind of out of his control, he ended up have, finding himself in Poverty Row, where he directed half of the Bowery Boys films, uh, most famously <laughs> being told at one point, hey, you're on schedule, we gotta get this done quick, and he went, what, people actually want to watch these movies? Oh, so sad. <laughs> yep. Um, he worked, like, really late into his career, and is most famous for directing the white coder, Mom and Dad. Oh, of course, yeah. Which is the film that we've talked about before, but uh, would go on the circuit promising to show a real live birth, which it did. Because that's the only way you could show female nudity in mm -hmm. a movie at that time, was to show a birth. And... I think up until The Blair Witch was considered the most profitable exploitation film of all time because <laughs> it supposedly racked in $100 million. Wow. But Bella Lugosi made some Brooklyn uh, Gorilla. I mean, I don't have much to say about it. I found it brutal. <laughs> like, I watched it on a train and it was a hell that I could not escape. <laughs> I looked out the windows and saw just blackness ahead of me. Uh, someone was sleeping beside me and I just looked at the screen, which was a shitty YouTube rip, all pixely and stuff like that. And I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> I actually started to write a tweet saying a few weeks ago I was really excited to go to a film festival and see a bunch of cool movies and now I'm stuck on a train at a 11 p.m. at night watching Bella Lugosi meets a Brooklyn gorilla. <laughs> I don't know what to say because I, I could watch this movie again right now. <laughs> I think that it's a piece that you have to approach as a mood experience in the sense that nothing happens in the film. <laughs> like, if you're sitting around waiting for the gorilla, like, you're going to be waiting. It's very conceptual. If you find the idea of a Martin and Lewis impersonator is funny, yes. then you will find this movie funny. If you take great joy in the idea of watching a Dean Martin impersonator sing a shitty song... <laughs> Do I need you? Now do I, baby? Indeed I do. And I think that the entire experience of the film can be summed up by its final moments where uh, the Jerry Lewis impersonator is shot by Bela Lugosi and killed only for it to be revealed that the entire film was a dream. So, you know, Jerry Lewis tried to sue the makers of this movie. Why? Well, so Sammy Petrillo was actually discovered by Jerry Lewis and Sammy Petrillo played jerry's son on a tv episode mm -hmm. and jerry signed him up to be you know uh, part of his agency but then he didn't get any work and sammy thought well jerry's trying to he sees me as competition he's trying to hamper my career i'm gonna go out there on my own and get my own italian partner and when jerry lewis saw bella lugosi meets a brooklyn gorilla apparently when sammy got shot he said in the screening room, thank God. <laughs> um, but hey, Bella in this movie is good. Yeah, I mean, he's doing his Bella thing, right? Playing a mad scientist. What about that scene where he has to deliver the long monologue? Like, Darwin's hypothesis tells us that... <laughs> that uh, like, he does it really well. He does. I yeah. mean, he's Bella Lugosi. It's just he's working with shitty-ass material. So, like, I think Karloff is a better actor than Lugosi, probably. Yes. But Bella Lugosi never phoned it in. And Bella Lugosi is always himself. He's an individual. What got me in preparing for this episode is, at some point, there's no change in the fact that he's got this voice and he's got this face and he has this mode of delivery and his acting style is very theatrical. And yet, within those narrow constraints, he was able to do a lot of different kinds of characters. Mm -hmm. You know, I mentioned the comedy broad-minded, but then... And then there's also Son of Frankenstein, where he plays Igor and gives a very sympathetic performance yes. as Igor. Or, you know, you look at The Raven, one of the movies he made with Boris Karloff, where he's like totally extreme, hammy, 
overacting, like Nicolas Cage style. But could Bella be anybody but himself? I think that Nicolas Cage is a great example to compare to Bella Lugosi. Because Nick Cage can give great performances. He won a goddamn Oscar for um, Leaving Las Vegas. But even in that movie, he is still Nicolas Cage. Bella can't disappear into a role. He's not a chameleon like Karloff is. But... Within within his persona, he can do a lot of different kinds of roles, and I don't. And also within that persona, he was never less than commanding. Like Bride of the Monster, the scene where he does that speech, "Home, I have no home." Oh, that's it, like such a great. It's speech. so beautiful, and he plays it so well. And it's really extreme. It's not naturalistic, but it's so commanding. Mm-hmm. And it's too bad that he didn't get to do his style of acting in more movies that weren't horror movies and that weren't shitty poverty row movies because what happened in bella's decline will just like a brief summary oh god well his wife of 20 years left him he was an alcoholic he'd been an alcoholic for many years uh he was a morphine addict and that morphine addiction uh really escalated after his wife left him he became the first celebrity to publicly submit himself to rehab Mm -hmm. and he apparently invited the media to come watch him like these are the desperate attempts of a faded man to try to get any sort of attention i think towards the end he just had trouble memorizing lines Uh, there are sad stories about how like to get attention he he was hired to make a public appearance at the premiere of house of wax Mm -hmm. and like so he shows up in his dracula cape and he like uh walks around with a guy in a gorilla suit on a leash. Yeah. <laughs> and it's and there's a funny story where some reporter who was supposed to interview him, he'd been Lugosi was hard of hearing. He'd been given the reporter's questions, but then the reporter decided to ask them out of order. Yes. So so the reporter would be like, uh, "So, how are you how do you like the the picture, Mr. Lugosi?" And he'd be like, "Thursday." <laughs> <laughs> But, but yeah, you know, he made the films with Ed Wood that we mm-hmm. all know, and then he died in poverty. Yeah, know, miserably. And died in poverty really just as his movies were starting to be rediscovered on television. All right. Well, that was a fun Shocktober episode, mm-hmm. and we got letters now. Uh, the first letter is from Daniel Davis. You can send us letters at Podcast at gmail.com. Daniel Davis, by the way, was Ed Wood's pseudonym in the film uh, Glenn or Glenda. Was as it? As an actor. Oh. So a very, very fitting... So this letter is just Will Sloan and Bold. And then underneath it says, cliche, auteur, journeyman, hack, problematic, woke, (laughs) armchair psychologist, receive wisdom, Jerry Lewis. Yeah, you got it. (laughs) And my list is much smaller. And one of them does not belong there. It says, Justin DeClue, insane, crazy, taskmaster, mainstream, stylistic, Jackie Chan. (laughs) <laughs> okay jackie chan does not belong on my list you know th- thank you daniel for your letter what's so weird about the fact that this podcast goes out is that like all these people who i've never met mm-hmm. and will never meet seem to know me really well now and yeah that is mind-boggling and, but they don't know you right will well they, they don't know the full depths of who <laughs> when I the am. when the podcast ends you're like that was a good podcast, Justin. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like I didn't know if I could sustain my accent that long. I mean, I can't even. So, how, how many of those words did I use in the episode today? I don't know. Someone should uh, send us uh, a letter. All right, <laughs> you could take a shot every time you hear it. So the next letter is from Leo Conte, and he goes, 
Hypocrisy, thy name, the important Anima Club podcast. Anima Club? <laughs> yes, that's what he wrote. Wait, why did everyone decide to write mean letters? Okay, I guess we have had like 50 episodes in a row where people say they love the podcast. That's right. So, okay, let's get... Let, I can take it. I'm a big boy. You criticize Ebert for giving conventional takes and being hostile to unconventional great horror movies. Then, minutes later, you criticize listeners for choosing Strange Hills to Die On... I would like to point out that Hill was anything else, the Woody Allen film. <laughs> because your opinions on certain movies are more conventional than theirs. I think that our opinions are fairly conventional. You know, I don't actually think, I think we were not that hard on Ebert. I think what we were saying was you don't go to him for the contrarian take. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you, I guess, were critical, as was I, about some of his takes on horror movies. Mm-hmm. But I, I see that as a factual statement. He was often the bellwether of mainstream opinion and he could articulate that opinion pretty well and also i like to think that there's some sort of a middle ground between a really mainstream take and and somebody defending the woody allen film anything else <laughs> yes. but anyway go, go ahead go ahead sir the important anima club question is living up pauline kale's ass this long after she's dead uncomfortable Whoa. ebert was better I mean, I don't know if you listened to the Pauline Kael episode we did. I'm not actually that big of a Pauline Kael fan. Yeah, I think we were actually maybe harder on Pauline Kael than we were on Ebert. I think we're, uh, we're Andrew Saris boys. <laughs> or Jonathan Rosenbaum. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for the great podcast. Okay. <laughs> you guys are my number one go-to source for insights on mafia-created celebrities like Jerry Lewis and Stephen Chow. Suggestion for future episode, Terry Gilliam. Your fan, Leo. P.S. Ebert was right, by the way. Violent horror movies and video games beget violence. Time has proven those annoying moms from the 90s whining about Mortal Kombat was poisoning the youth at least partially right. PPS. Sloan. Socialism? Really? Did I say anything about socialism in that episode? I don't know. There's a lot to tackle in that back half of the letter. A lot of it very mean. Um, you know, socialism... Uh... I don't have anything to say about socialism. <laughs> yeah. uh, Gilliam, I'm sure we'll probably do him when The Man Who Killed Don Quixote comes out, probably. Mm-hmm. So probably sometime next year. And I don't want to make any assumptions, Leo, but I don't know. It doesn't sound like you're a very big fan. <laughs> All right. I next. Feel so, oh, is this next one nice? <laughs> I feel so deflated. Wait, let's just wipe the tears from your eyes <laughs> and we'll get on to the next letter. Dear Justin and Will, and it's from John Stevens. Sometimes on a Saturday night or Tuesday night or Thursday afternoon or really honestly any time, I want nothing more than 90 minutes of martial arts mania. I always like your recommendations. Do you guys each have a top five or so from the past 15 years? Whew. Uh, We're going to be honest that the martial arts films of the last decade and a half have not really popped like they did in the 90s or the 80s or even the 70s when Sean Brothers was at its uh, strength. And another admittance that I read this email and meant to send it to Will so he could make a list, and I forgot. So Will is quickly searching on the internet for stuff uh, to remind him. I think that one of the issues when trying to recommend martial arts films is that because they are very difficult to do well, there's not really that many that I found that get completely under my radar. And when people ask for recommendations, especially in the last, like, 15 years, my knee-jerk reactions are things that... I feel like most people know, which is like SPL, the um, Wilson Yip directed film that stars Donnie Yen and Sammo Hong, which made huge waves when it came out, uh, released in North America under the name Kill Zone. <laughs> and then you have uh, SPL 2, which came out a few years ago, which was released again under Kill Zone 2, which I think is a great martial arts film that works as a whole, not just the fight scenes, which is super rare. 
I think Donnie Yen's movies in general are pretty good. I mean, you mentioned that he has this philosophy that the movies have to have three big action scenes. I don't know if he said that. It feels like it does. I I always kind of wish that they had just one more. One more, more. yeah. It, it, the thing about Donnie Yen one, especially his more minor pictures, mm-hmm. like um, something like Kung Fu Killer. I liked Kung Fu Killer. But it did have that, like, only, like, three and a half action scene issue where you're like, you just wish there was a little bit more to it. Yeah. Maybe it's just when we see, like, an old Jackie Chan film or Sammo Hung, we're much more easier on them because we're like, oh, they were made a long time ago, 20 years. (laughs) Not very long, but... Yeah, you know, we often go to the Young and Dundas Cineplex where the Hong Kong movies play now in Toronto. And I'm just so often so disappointed... uh, you know, oftentimes we go to see kind of the Hong Kong directors that we grew up loving. Gordon Chan directing God of War that stars Sam Hung. Yeah, or, you know, we'll see a Choi Hawk movie or a Ringo Lam movie and then just kind of be like, ugh. Yeah, I wish yeah. they were better. But another one of the problems with martial arts movies is, and maybe it's good for the world, but there isn't that infrastructure to create martial arts stars anymore. Jackie Chan, Sam Hung, they were brought up through the P- the Peking opera mm-hmm. and they were like raised, you know, doing backbreaking labor and acrobatic exercises for like 16 hours a day from the ages of 6 to 16. And Jackie Chan will mention that every time he gets <laughs> interviewed because it is so formative for him and that infrastructure like Will said doesn't exist so what we get are pop stars that do martial arts And it's just kind of tossed on in a way because it's usually stunt people doing it. And as martial arts actors, it's not the focus of the picture. It's not like this person is doing all their own stunts. Let's highlight it. It's just another part of fun in what you're watching. Like uh, uh, that God of Gamblers film that we saw Mm -hmm. would have some martial arts in it, but it's not the focus. Mm -hmm. And because of that, it's difficult to find like great martial arts films to recommend. It feels like Tony Jaw and Donnie Yen are kind of the last of a dying breed. SPL2 though, I think is, is my pick. Off the top of my head, I would have to recommend, which most people know, but Chocolate, which was directed by the um, guy who made Unkbak, is very, very good. There's a movie that came out a few years ago and kind of came and went, uh, The Ras of Vajra, which is just a, like, no-frills kung fu film that stars that stars a guy that was obviously picked not for his acting, but just for his martial arts performance. And it, it kind of harkens back to the disposable martial arts of the 90s from Hong Kong, but in a slick, really fun way. You can look as well to the independent scene, Uh, it's not that flourishing when it comes to feature films. I want to highlight the work of Eric Jacobus and his stunt people group. Uh, He made a film, I don't remember the exact year, called Contour, which has some of the best uh, martial arts that you will probably ever see on cinema. It's shot on shitty mini DV. It looks like crap, but it's the fight scenes are so much fun. And the climax is like, 30 minutes long that you'll forget that you'll probably want to reach over for the fast forward button during the comedic scenes. I have to admit, I haven't seen a lot of his movies, but isn't Isaac Florentine supposed to be really good in that regard? Yeah. So like Isaac Florentine is the go-to guy as well for like no frills, but kind of auteuristic 
uh, action movies, his Undisputed 2 and 3. Um, he also ghost-directed Undisputed 4, uh, the Scott Atkins film. He's not credited due to, I hear, union reasons, but mm. it's definitely his thing. And even when he makes a kind of minor film like Close Range, it still stars Scott Atkins, mm. and it's fun, and it has fun action scenes. Or Ninja 2, the hilariously subtitled, I think it's Shadow of a Tear or right. something like that, is a lot of fun as well. Um, oh, one more recommendation. I'm not going to make any great claims for it as a movie, but you and Wu-Ping's True Legend was one of the movies from recent years that reminded me most of a, of a 70s mm-hmm. kung fu movie. Uh, I'm trying to think, like, has, like, Japan giving us any, like, crazy so. uh, martial arts films? There was, like, a little wave in something like High Kick Girl, but, like, the filmmaking there wasn't as strong as it could be, and it doesn't have that dynamic style I really love from Hong Kong films. I mean, in Korea, they do martial arts a little bit, but they don't focusing on too much like um, Fighter in the Wind is a fun one uh, the cinema of Ryu Sung Wong I really love uh, I think I've talked about him before he made a modern day uh, wuxia picture that's set in the city called Arahan that he takes his inspiration from Jackie Chan he also made what he wanted to be a pure action film which he stars in with the stunt coordinator as his co-star mm-hmm. and called City of Violence if uh, you haven't had a chance to see it um, I think it's really fun I'm sure more will come to my mind if i think of them later on in other podcasts where we funny. talk about martial arts it'll come up where can they write us important cinema club podcast at gmail.com all right and please nice letters only <laughs> we, we just we just won't read the mean ones no 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 i i'll take mean letters i think it's <laughs> constructive criticism did you think that guy's letter was constructive uh, <laughs> so next week the halloween series will sure uh, we talked about John Carpenter's Halloween um, like a year ago, so we're not going to ta- uh, touch that one too much, but we're going to watch Halloween 2 and Rob Zombie's Halloween 2. Okay. To the two extremes of the franchise. I've actually never seen uh, Part 3 Season of the Witch either, so I might check it out. Yeah, check that one out. We can uh, talk about it in terms of franchises that try to do something different. Mm-hmm. Uh, until then, my name is Justin Clue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. The biggest entertainment story, actually one of the biggest stories, period, over the last week or two has been the Harvey Weinstein scandal. Uh, I mean, we don't really even need to get into how terrible it is Mm -hmm. because that's self-evident. I think one of the things I found interesting about it was I think as recently as 10 years ago, all of this Weinstein stuff or a lot of the Weinstein stuff. Yeah, it was out. It was out. And it also could have just been laughed off or repositioned as being part of his brand. Like part of his appeal to those who found him appealing was that he was the last mogul. Yeah. Like he was passionate. He was mean. People did talk about how he was like lecherous with women and stuff like that, but it was just kind of included with him like being kind of mean like it was all part and parcel even like a book like peter biskin's um down and dirty pictures which is essentially a like an enumeration of bad things harvey has done didn't hurt him at all like it it, it only enhanced his reputation yeah exactly It, it made him seem like this like yeah like this uh cigar chomping like feet on the desk mogul and you know somebody like harry cohen or sam goldwin uh, would use their actresses as a harem, basically. Yeah. There's been a change in understanding about certain gender power dynamics over the last 10 years because 10 years ago, the idea that, well, you know, you're a, you're a big studio head, of course you get women. Yeah, it's the idea of the casting couch, right? Yeah. Like, that is known in the vernacular as, oh, it's just something that happens. It's bad, but 
Like, but what it, are we going to do? Did they even really consider it bad? I think no, I don't think they. Did. I, I think imp- it was implicit that okay, you get to be rich and famous, and that, in, and you were entitled to use the fact that you're rich and famous to get to get girls. I mean, y- you know, the the pussy posse mm-hmm. with, with Leonardo DiCaprio. I'm not saying that they're the same as Harvey Weinstein, but it's like they they part of the appeal was that they were rich and famous guys who used being rich and famous to get women. And what's fascinating about the Harvey Weinstein uh, situation is that if this exact article had come out 10 years ago, I don't think it would have had the impact yeah, that it would yeah. have. And as much as I like to rag on it, one of the reasons for that is Twitter because mm-hmm. it stays in the public consciousness of all these people because it continually retweeted and people mm-hmm. see about it and they find more information about it. And I think that's the reason that it's had the massive impact, as it should, that it has. And Twitter has also shown us that certain ideas and certain facts that, frankly, would not have made it into the mainstream media, like with the Cosby incident, it took Hannibal Burris saying it in a stand-up act and that getting retweeted and retweeted. That never would have come out in the mainstream media because they would have been worried about being sued. And or, that was also a commonly known thing. Yes. And it's just like, well, you know, but we like Cosby, so... And who I, knows if it's true, yeah, settled yeah. out of court, may or may not be true. And with Weinstein, because of something like Twitter, it does, like, more information keeps coming out that are just more damning, mm-hmm. and as it should be, because, I mean... I mean, to that point, it's interesting to see all the actresses who have taken to their social media accounts to tweet stories, you know, famous actresses and not so famous actresses tweeting stories of sexual harassment in Hollywood uh, that all cumulatively add up into a picture of, you know, a a deeply flawed system. All that wouldn't have been possible without Twitter. And with Twitter, you also get takes like, well, it's a slippery slope once you start doing that, which is fucking ridiculous. I believe um, Mr. Uh, Woody Allen today was saying he was uh, (laughs) worried about a witch hunt. And as I would like to point out, it would be kind of great if there were uh, no more people that committed sexual assault in the Hollywood system. God God forbid there was a witch hunt of of rapists. Yeah. Yeah. Like, and... You also get like, well, Roman Polanski is still in the Academy and he raped all these people. Yeah, he should be kicked out. Is like, Roman Polanski in the Academy? Woody Allen's not in the Academy. Supposedly Bill Cosby is. Really? Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, okay. yeah. get rid of these people. People are afraid, oh no, this is going to change everything. Yeah, it should because the system is <laughs> terrible. 